What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. And I'm Savannah. And before we get into the episode today, I just wanted to let everybody know just a brief update on our buttercup, aka Lilith. So obviously she was on the episode a few weeks ago, but she is making a phase return to the podcast. So we hope that she'll be back with us full time soon. She hasn't left the podcast, but she will be making appearances from time to time until she's ready to come back full time. So we still miss our buttercup, but she's also still with us as well. And she's still uh, recovering and we send her all our love and well wishes to Lilith. In current events and current news, we have a very, very special guest today. We have a very, very special guest, probably no tea, no shade to our previous esteemed guests. So this might be my favorite guest today. And it is <laughs> my own sister. It's my sister, Lara. Say hello, Lara. Oh, what's up, queens? I've always, always wanted to say that. So yeah, what's up, queens? <laughs> hello, I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> so this isn't just like, just rank nepotism. I'm not just having her just for banks. Um <laughs> This is the Nepo Baby podcast. (laughs) She's got friends in high places. She's very connected. Uh, That's why she's here. So one of the things that we wanted to do here at FDS was to get the perspective of somebody who has been through the whole FDS journey, so to speak. So all the way from uh, dating and courtship, all the way up to marriage and having a child. Because, you know, whilst we understand not everybody who listens to FDS is after, you know, marriage and children, a lot of our listeners are. So this is why I brought my older sister, Lara, onto the show, because I've been fortunate enough to witness her entire, I guess, like your dating and relationship journey from when I was very, very young. And a lot of that, it was almost FDS before I knew FDS was a thing. So I came to FDS in 2020 or so. And I was observing like my sister dating from the time I was about 13 or 14 when I was really, really young. So I thought it'd be really interesting to get her perspective on dating and marriage and hope that it helps some of you out there, especially when it comes to conceptualizing what a high value relationship all the way up into marriage and like having children actually looks like as well. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So to start with though, tell us about your dating. So how you navigated dating and where you sort of, you know, got your dating advice from, because obviously we are from a Nigerian background. A lot of the (laughs) dating advice is pick me, so to speak quite misogynistic, quite useless. I mean, to women anyway. So tell us a bit about that and your experiences around navigating dating. Okay. So I would say that I started off pretty much a pick me. Patriarchy means that I just feel like a lot of women are just born, young girls are just sort of born into this idea that, you know, he wasn't a pick me, let's be real. And I do give credit to myself in that I wasn't as far gone as some other people, but yeah. I did sort of have that sort of, you know, love conquers all, money doesn't matter. (laughs) And very quickly found out that, yeah, love doesn't quite conquer all and yeah, money does matter. But yeah, like, so I've dated all kinds of different men, different ethnicities, different, I suppose, economic capabilities, different religions, even that was quite interesting. And I guess as I got older, I found what I was taught about relationships, there was a huge conflict there because as I was getting older and dating different men, I found myself dating like less of the kind of guy that I was sort of expected to date or encouraged to date and found that actually some of the men that I was told perhaps aren't so great, that they had fine qualities about them. And actually it was kind of 
taking a bit from one guy and another bit from another guy and just building a profile that was ended up being almost the complete opposite of what I thought I knew was the right kind of guy. So almost like this anti-Disney, anti-Disney prince that was a bit more grounded in reality and actually could deliver for me. And actually what I found was that I didn't realize how much, how little was expected of a guy. Like you go into a relationship when you're younger and you don't think about what a guy does for you in terms of what they, the expectations you have of them and how damaging that is to being in a relationship. So yeah, I suppose I very much refined what I wanted as I went along and started to build a criteria. And even within that, those criteria started to then build almost like sub-criteria. And that's kind of how I navigated that until I, uh, until I met my now husband. So like a funnel, right? Like you start with your big needs and things that are deal breakers and then narrow it down to what uh, more specific things. Yeah, absolutely. Like an example was like, okay, let's talk about money. Like before, you know, the whole like, oh, money doesn't matter. Like, you know, and then you realize, no, it does. (laughs) And then so I thought like, so I need to date a guy who's got it. And then I realized actually, it's not actually how much a guy has because I dated guys who had loads of money and guys who had very little money. It was actually, for me personally, it was their relationship with money that was more important to me and how they spent it as opposed to how much they had or how little they had. So it's that constant refining. You know, when I was in relationships, I would always take, because I'm quite a reflective person, I'd always take time to like unpick the discomfort that I felt sometimes that I didn't always understand. And then I studied the kind of degree that I studied at university. It meant that I picked and challenged absolutely everything. And that extended to my relationships as well. And then very quickly you realize actually this whole relationship game, even as far as marriage, a lot of it doesn't work to the benefit of women at all. They're actually very, apart from companionship and the hope of, you know, being in a loving and deep, a loving and meaningful relationship, there aren't that many other benefits <laughs> to these things for women. So it's like, okay, right. So how can I go about making this work? Because it's something that I want, but in a way that actually serves me. Yeah. And that's when dating got quite colourful for me. I think in terms of the finance point, I do think that's one of the good things about the rare good things about Nigerian culture and general dating advice is that if you're broke, you will get roasted all throughout Nollywood. You know, those storylines where the man had no money and he was treated like shit for the whole film until he got money at the end. <laughs> and, it, and it was like, no romance without finance. That was literally like most, that was like most like Nollywood films. That was the plot line for so many. So on the finance thing, I do actually sort of, I sort of hear that. But in terms of, you know, dating becoming colourful when you sort of begun to formulate that profile and have your bands and standards. How did that play out in, you know, when you actually came to date these men and you started setting those boundaries and standards? I would say I almost went to a bit of an extreme. I just got to a point where I really enjoyed like firing guys. (laughs) (laughs) You just got to feel that in your gut, right? Yeah. When you get to the point where you're generally FDS from like your mind, body and spirit, like it actually feels good to just be like, yeah, no. (laughs) Like you just feel truly powerful. Just get the scissors. Shing, 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 shing. (laughs) Literally. And then just sometimes like witnessing the shock, like of some of these guys who were like, you're actually going to end this over that. And I'm yeah, because I warned you once and you did it again. So no, (laughs) and actually realizing there's so much power in actually walking away and understanding. And even to this day, like I would say in terms of, I suppose we'll talk about the whole marriage stuff later, but I think for me and for, I think for women, like the best relationships are the ones that you know that you can leave. Like if you feel stuck or you're afraid to leave, chances are you're being treated like absolute, like, cow pat. 
But actually, if you know that you can leave, then you're staying because you want to and you're getting what you need from the relationship as opposed to just staying because you're afraid to go. Like, does that make sense? Yeah. So much of our cultural pressure as women has been put upon us through fear, right? The idea that like, oh, you're going to die alone. And then I think a marked difference between Nigerian culture versus like American culture is there's a romanticization built around struggle love, hashtag struggle love, where you're supposed to suffer with men when they're broke, which I think is completely different from Nigerian culture. Like you guys said that like there's an expectation of no romance without finance. (laughs) Gwen Goffrey, yeah. (laughs) But that said, the minute you get married then all of that stuff applies, which I think I just find so dangerous and it makes me really angry. There's this idea that, you know, once you're in a relationship with someone, once you're engaged to them, once you're committed to them, once you're married to them, whatever that looks like for you, then no matter what happens, yeah, you're in, you're locked in now. And it's not even the kind of, there's one thing to try and make a relationship work and do what is required to sort of get through these hard times. But then it's just this expectation for you to just find a way of coping with the hell. Like, no, that's not what I signed up for. And this almost this gaslighting into women to into believing that marriage or long-term relationships have to be this like endless tale of suffering and woe. And like at the end of it, when he's old and like and busted and broken and probably can't get it up anymore, he's now faithful to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he now cares about you. And it's like, well, natural fact is he's sick and as a result, he can't get it up. And he needs someone to look after him. And no one wants him. And I was so anti that. And I used to, I have these different memories of going to church. And they really do a job on reinforcing this in the church. And I'd just be sat there just disagreeing. Because I used to go to, you know, the youth part when I was a teenager. And I just, I'd end up getting on the um, youth leader's nerves. Because I just kept picking, like, hang on, but, you know, why does virginity apply only to the woman? You know, why do I have to make sure that why is it must only my responsibility to make sure that the home is somewhere where he wants to come back to? Why is that on me? Yeah. And they never have answers, right? Every time you would ask the question, that would be pushing towards a little bit more of equitable treatment. Then they wouldn't really have an answer for you because they wouldn't. It's like, oh, it's not really in the Bible. Is like what I would hear repeatedly. Yeah. And I found that, you know, the conversations around sex also like, you know, I remember being, I was like 14, 14, 15. And they were like, masturbation is wrong. Okay. And I was just, you know, I wanted to understand why. Generally open to it. You know, I was, you know, young and impressionable and believed it. And they just couldn't tell me. And I was like, but why? Like, you can't say it's, it's biblical. I was like, okay, but tell me how, why? Like, and then it was kind of, we need to move on. And then someone came and tapped me on the shoulder. I was like, you're disrupting the class. It's like, okay. Like, so you're just making it up then. <laughs> making it up then. <laughs> Just get source. Trust me, bro. That's the source. <laughs> oh, gosh. But yeah, the church really does a number on. I remember when we went to that sermon at this church in London, mega church in London, where the pastor just went on this like misogynistic rant about women. And he, tr- he like tried. T- oh, my gosh. It was like he was basically saying how like, oh, if you're a woman and there's food, don't like pile your plate. It's not nice if you're eating in public. And I'm just like, what? And I remember everyone apart from his wife is just not really following like what he was getting at or like the spiritual lesson that was coming out of it. It was just a fully misogynistic rant. And it made us, like we were just pissing ourselves laughing because it was being recorded as well because it was so ridiculous. But actually, you know, this guy had so much influence over the church. And, you know, what he was saying was basically saying like women 
And, you know, another thing you said was like, if I come to your house, I expect like, you know, the meat and the fish to be in separate dishes. I don't want my meat touching my fish. And I was thinking, what? And it was just purely directed towards women. He kept on picking, yeah, kept on picking up women. And at one point he was like, oh, we need to clap for the mothers. Everyone, you know, round of applause for the mothers in this, in this church. And there were probably at least a couple thousand people there. And I was like, why? And he said, oh, my child is two. This is the first time that I had to look after him for an afternoon and it was hell. And it was really, really hard. So I just want to clap on behalf of, you know, but my wife and all, and all women need to clap for them. And I just thought, wow, so you're like a leader of this church. And you've basically said that you haven't looked after your child on your own, who's two, ever until this one afternoon. And it's only now that you realise the extent of what it takes to raise like a kid, even though it's yours, just giving this impression that it's a woman's responsibility and also not appreciating that responsibility until you did it yourself. Like, really? <laughs> Are you just like not ashamed of yourself? Like it was just wild. I completely hear you about the church and the sort of like messaging that we get. And I've often said, and you know, like Ro and I and like Lilith, we've discussed this in other podcasts as well. But the church is part of the reason why the pendulum has basically gone from purity culture all the way to the casual sex posse, sleep with anyone, there's no consequences. It's all fun, even though you're not getting any orgasms out of it. You know, sex culture that we have now. It's just it's a huge part of the reason. And that's because the sex education in church is basically just don't do it. And they can't even tell you a point to scripture as to why and how you just don't do it. They can't tell you. And also this like kind of like, you know, touch and, you know, once you've, you know, you've done it, that's it. You're impure. Like you're not, you're not redeemable. That's it. You're done. Finished. Like doesn't matter how much you cared about the person or how many people it was. It's like, you're just now you're dirty and you're not worthy and you may as well, you know, jump back in time to Sodom and Gomorrah and just die there. Like, you know? Yeah, exactly. So shifting back to dating then, you know, what would you say were some of the, like, boundaries that you put in place that perhaps that there may not be, like, the most obvious ones, so to speak? So, for example, most people wouldn't date a guy with a criminal record, I would hope. But, like, you know, what were some of the boundaries and, you know, basically standards that you had that were perhaps, you know, really important to you, but on the outside, people would be like, you're just being too picky. Because a lot of our listeners, they hear that a lot from their friends, or you're just being picky. Like, it's not a big deal if he watches porn, for example, or you're overreacting or controlling or whatever. So what were some of the boundaries and standards that you put in place that mattered to you that perhaps the wider society were not seen as a big deal? First thing that comes, I guess, comes to mind is like relationships with people around him. Like I was always very curious to know who he spent most of his time with, like how he spent his time. So if he was one of those, like was always online, like MSN was a thing. Like I just knew, okay, you're always online. You're probably talking to about a hundred different girls and you're probably bashing away all day to porn. Like, you know, those sorts of things. Or if like, if I met, went on a date and all they could tell me about themselves, okay, we'll talk, you know, what are you interested in? I like football in the pub and going to parties like like what and, and that's it like I can't get past you know all right like that's you and like another few million people in this country why are you like and that to me would tell me that you don't really know yourself and if you can't tell me that you have any interests or hobbies besides what a typical man might be interested in you know I just think you don't know yourself and I just feel like everything that you do is going to be dictated by what people think you should do. So that for me was really important. I always also like to see a guy who was a bit, who just didn't do what his friends expected him to do. So it was a guy, not actually a guy that I dated, but I just found it super, super, I found it super, super attractive when a guy told me one time that he liked 
a Nissan Micra. And Ra, I don't know if you're familiar with these cars, but they're really, really small. Yeah, they're like little hatchbacks, often associated with women because like older women, because they're so small. Yeah. Older women, like they're so small. And I was just like, and this guy was like a tall athlete, you know, just not the kind of guy that you'd expect, you know, typically when you meet a guy that, yeah, you know, it's typically the kind of guy that was, you know, you'd be like, I want a Range Rover, I want a, you know, Mercedes, Audi, BMW, okay, yeah, whatever, cool, like who doesn't want that? But just someone who just knows what he wants and isn't afraid to say what he wants. Because for me that I found that secure because it meant that you're going to stand up for me and that you're not just going to do stuff based on what society says that you should do. Because society doesn't encourage men or doesn't reward men to treat women well. They don't. The easy option is for them not to. So if you're someone who can just go against the grain, me personally, I felt like I had more hope that you would treat me how I needed to be treated and not make it seem like, you know, that you're like, you know, the boyfriend from heaven, like you've been sent from, you know, you're just some like angel sent to me just because, you know, you remember my birthday or just because you give a shit about my interests, you know? That was probably quite... I'd like to say almost like ahead of your time, especially, you know, we're in the UK. UK is, you know, very much 50-50, quite pick-me culture, quite, you know, it's okay to have a date down at Spoons and he buys you a Diet Coke and you go harvest on the bill. Like, it's very much that sort of, you know, culture as well in the UK. Yeah, and it was. And I, I remember at the time feeling a bit isolated because I just knew that I felt, you know, at certain points that I was the only kind of, of all the women that I knew, I was the only person who dated how I dated and so I think something like this I think would have just I, this is why I just think this podcast is just so amazing because I think it can really give people women the perspective that they need to have when they're dating and just open their minds because ultimately we're born into this whole Disney prince princess sort of mindset and it's just it's just very problematic for us isn't it so this is kind of a side note I was just watching the 30th anniversary of Beauty and the Beast did you see that I don't know if they broadcast it over in the UK, but it's like it, they did a, a live action musical intercut with scenes from the movie. And I'm like, this is so much worse than even what I remember as far as like the amount of abuse that like Belle tolerates. And he's a literal beast animal. Can you imagine? Would they ever get someone like Henry Cavill in a film, you know, where the woman, you know, looks like a troll? Absolutely not. No, no. And I was trying to play something for my daughter. and. I put on Cinderella and I thought, okay, it's got some silly songs. And from what I remember about the plot, it's not too bad. And then I started watching it and I just felt like I felt sick. Like, I was just like, I cannot believe like this is what it's just. They used to tell girls, right? Because I know Beauty and the Beast, the original story was written for women who were in arranged marriages to help them like cope with the fact that a lot of times the men they were married to was like a complete dick because he can be. And I did not know that. Oh my God. It makes sense. And then they Disney-fight it. And there's so many places where... <laughs> Disney-fight. <laughs> yeah. Like, it just gives women a lot of false expectations about how to handle abusive men. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest, I think, challenges for like women and like dating and that realization of it's not okay to date a guy who doesn't have his shit together. It's not your responsibility to rescue or save or to just endure like whatever shit he doesn't have going for him. Like, I think if that alone could be addressed, I think that would change the whole dating game entirely. Mm -hmm. I mean, so then like moving on to, I guess, the beginning of your now marriage like you know what was that like because 
if I think about your husband, I mean, we've, I've probably known him now for over a decade now, but it's like, again, I think, you know, like I said at the top of the episode, it wasn't somebody you perhaps would have gone for in the years before you met. And he, at the time, I remember thinking when I first met him, like, he's very different. It wasn't in a good or a bad way, but it's just, he's very, he was very, very different. And we'll come on to why in a bit, but like, how did that get started? <sighs> okay. I've gone on to like bash, like the whole Disney thing. But anytime I say how that started, it sounds like a Disney thing. Just in terms of how I met him, it was kind of, I met him at university and we just started to see each other and just stare intensely at each other. And it was really weird because I was really, I'm really good at eyeing up eye candy and looking away, but I just couldn't with this guy. Like, And I just thought, okay, that was the first, the first time it happened, I was like, okay, right. I'm just like, okay, that was a bit of a slip up, but yeah, I'll never see him again. <laughs> I'll be calling next time. Like, <laughs> I'll be yeah, calling next time, you know. <laughs> I just thought I'd never see him again because it was just a guy randomly at uni. Like, but then I just kept seeing him everywhere and I just couldn't stop intensely staring. Anyway, and neither could he, my eye had. Neither could he. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then we started speaking. I think he had a mutual friend of mine. And yeah, like, I suppose the thing about meeting someone at university is that you're kind of in a similar stage in your life and you're wanting very similar things. So I guess in, at that point, a lot of your sort of future values are, can be very, very aligned. And the courses that we were doing, one, they didn't clash with each other. I did take an interest in what he studied and what he wanted to do with it, because there were a lot of people at my university who were doing degrees that I thought, I just don't see a future with that by this time. Like, you know, money and ability to be able to make money was important. And also how he thought. So, you know, you are right, Savannah, in that he was very different. And that's what I found so odd. He was very different. Like years before, I just wouldn't have looked. I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have dated him. He was perhaps maybe a bit too quiet for my liking. And he just wasn't what I thought. But when I got to know him, it was almost like an onion. Like there was just another layer. And he was just, there was so much more underneath. And actually he ticked a lot of, I guess, my criteria. So I guess that's how that started. There was work to do. There was work to do in, I suppose it's your values and your belief system. And it became very clear that he had one way of thinking, especially towards the plight of women. He didn't fully understand or hadn't, it was quite clear that he didn't understand what it was to be a woman. That said, I always thought I could talk to him and tell him anything and he would listen. Might not agree, but he'd listen. And that's all I needed to know that he would listen to me. And then I just, we went on a bit of a journey. And I think being with me helped him realize, gosh, like the kinds of things that I experienced versus him. And I suppose I can talk about that actually a bit more when we talk about the whole, when we move to sort of talking about marriage. He then witnessed what it's, you know, how differently society ch treats women to men. And I think over the last few years, it's really challenged him and made him think about what he can do as a man to be better and to create a better environment for women, which I'm just so passionate about. I think Dr. Gail Dines, uh, when we had her on to talk about pornography, she mentioned something similar with her husband when they met in the 1970s. And she basically said that, you know, if you like a guy and he likes you and you're, you decide to begin this journey together, you sort of need to decide upfront how much you're willing to invest in trying to open his eyes or, you know, get him to understand what you're going through. Because for some men, they'll just get it. But I think for a lot of men, it isn't that they don't want to understand it. It's just that they either haven't been exposed to it. And so they can't really fully comprehend it, you know, as well. So, but it also depends on the man's individual characteristics. If he is somebody that is open to learning, that's very, very different to just an outright misogynist who like Andrew Tate misogynist, 
who just like refuses to you know to be open to any sort of dialogue and is actively anti-woman if that makes sense oh yeah absolutely but yeah so the courtship stage because like you know when I was saying that your husband is very different I was referring to the fact he was quiet and one of the things that we get a lot on reddit on the subreddit when it was up and just general questions is like, oh this guy is really quiet so this is why like he doesn't text me back or he doesn't like taking initiative for dates because he's just shy and I remember thinking this is bollocks because obviously I knew your husband and you I used to I even used to like third wheel on the dates I feel a bit bad looking back <laughs> you were just like third wheel on the dates but he would plan dates he would go out of his way he would like sometimes even pay for me if I was there and this was a guy who people would say is quiet. So it's not like, it's almost like an excuse that people tend to make for men when they're just like, oh, but he's quiet. That's why he doesn't make any effort. Like being quiet doesn't mean that you lack initiative. No, it doesn't mean that you lack character or that you like, or that means that you're not dynamic or you're not interesting. And I've had to go on a journey with understanding quiet people. And I'm so grateful that I learned that through him because it makes me understand other quiet people better. Being quiet doesn't mean that they're not intentional about you. In fact, I think they are, in actual fact, I think the quieter guys tend to be more demonstrative of their intentions because that's what they have. They might not talk very much, but they can do stuff. So yeah, I just don't think there's any excuse to hide behind when it comes to being intentional with a woman. And I think if a guy's not texting you back or planning dates, and I suppose there's a difference between not knowing what to do but being willing to go along with suggested things and just to just have a completely like apathetic approach. Oh, I mean, so what were like the green flags that you noticed and perhaps some of the, I guess, like red flags potentially that you noticed during the courtship phase? Okay, I'll start with the green flags. Like I said before, he was, you know, he listened. I always found it quite difficult to find a guy who would listen to me. And he was very determined and driven to be successful but for him being successful was about being the best version of himself and being able to provide for a family like actually it wasn't just like delusional version of success that some men have that want to be like the next elon musk when they just haven't got the resource capacity skill level connections whatever also they have no plan as to like you want to be elon Elon musk what so how are you going to get there and also when you get there what are you going to be like you know you just want to be the next wolf of wall street basically like those kinds of men that glorify, like, you know, the whole Jordan Belfort, I'm just like, nah, get in the bin, please. But yeah, he took an interest in what I was interested in. Like he, in spite of how, I guess, quiet he was and how introverted he is, he made an effort with my friends, which was really important to me. He didn't hide anything, any part of his life. He was, you know, fully, he was all in to the point where at one point he was probably more invested than I was. And I used to call things marriage exclusive. So things I would do that I would refuse to do for him because I wasn't married to him. Because I'm like, that's just not my responsibility. It's not, I'm not asking for the ring. I just don't believe that's my responsibility uh, whilst I'm not married to you. And he used to get really upset because he's like, I'm giving him my 100%. And I'm like, yeah, that's really nice. But yeah, this is a boundary for me. But yeah, so, you know, he did respect my space. And he's just a pleasure to be around. Like, there's just not one person who's ever, yeah, who, who doesn't say those things. The red flags for me were, I suppose at the beginning, okay, you don't get what it's like to be a woman. You have no idea. I don't think anyone had really briefed him on like, okay, you get a girlfriend and this is how, this is what romance looks like. I think he tried, but it was very limited and quite stunted. And that at the beginning, in the early stages of a relationship was really, really important to me. And sometimes that was 
you know, that was lacking. And if we were to get into a disagreement, my gosh, like he goes from being the quietest person to like the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> like, <laughs> and yeah, so that was like, ah, I don't know if I can, yeah, if I could deal with this. And then, you know, this is a more logistical thing. Very, very quickly, about a year and a half into our relationship, we became long distant. And yeah, that was extremely challenging. And we were long distance for about six years, almost six years. Yeah, it's a really, really long time. Yeah, and I think as well with your husband, when I came across him, was that he's a quiet person, but he's got such a good heart. And I know that there's nothing that he wouldn't do for you. Like if you said you wanted a Range Rover tomorrow, he might be like, but why, why, why? But he would do what he can, you know, to get it as well. And he's always extended that generosity to other members of the family as well. And I think that's another underrated point about men is it isn't just about necessarily the way they treat you, but it's how they treat your family members. And it's not even to their faces behind their back. If they're willing to disparage, say, your sister or your brother or your mum in an unwarranted way, so to speak, if they're quite rude and dismissive towards them, that's a huge red flag, in my opinion. Because even if they've done something that they don't agree with, there's a way to go about that without going nuclear and being offensive, so to speak. That was just my observation. And I think he's always thought about, like, you know, sometimes I've asked him to do things, maybe like sometimes for me, but sometimes for the family or other people, he doesn't particularly think he should do, or he doesn't want to do, but he recognises that it means a lot to me and that's why he's doing it. And that's something that I've always appreciated. So it's that, I guess, that willingness to go the extra mile. And I think as well, like his like journey from being almost not really getting, you know, how women are mistreated to having a better understanding is like he's very much if we say like for example men are trash to all agree because he's seen it for himself or that you know like i will like send him i used to send him posts from the subreddit being like ha 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 and he'd be like yeah the, the guy's like tapped or something like that <laughs> okay cool <laughs> can you ask steven if this scenario if i should jump ship and he'll just be like yeah jump ship and they'll do it because they're just like if steven says that then yeah, they know that it's bad. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gone. And he wouldn't just say that. Like, he doesn't like to, you know, he's a man and he still has solidarity with men. The kind of solidarity that I wish more women had with each other. But he'll call, like, bullshit out when he sees it. He'll call out male bullshit. Yeah. So then, like, I mean, so obviously this is now the dating phase. How do you then transition that from, you know, dating to marriage? Like, what did that look like? Was it like, because I know it wasn't a case of you, like, you know, waiting to be proposed, like, waiting again every time you saw him, like, standing, please pick me. But, like, how did that <laughs> transition from, you know, dating to marriage? And obviously, because you were, you know, so, I don't think you ever lived together during, until, again, you know, how did you manage that? Because, again, in this society, especially in the UK where rents are increasing, it's almost seen as, like, you have to live with somebody to know what they're really like. And that can get women into really, really sticky situations economically because then if the relationship goes less, you're stuffed, basically. Yeah, and that's a lot to do with why, you know, we're dating for a number of years before we got married. And when marriage started to look like a possibility or something that we both wanted and people were like, oh, why don't you get married now? It's been a while. And it was like, because I wasn't in a position financially where I could be independent. And that was really important to me. I did not want to enter a marriage with no job, no money, no means of being self-sufficient and to enter a marriage dependent on him because I knew that would, I would not feel comfortable 
In fact, that would make me feel quite insecure. And if I'm insecure, I'm just, it's going to play out in the relationship. I don't think it would be good for him and overall for us. I just, it's just not a dynamic that I wanted. But how the whole, how marriage started, it was just talk about our futures and what we wanted. And yeah, we wanted to live together. We wanted to explore having children because children whenever, as I got older, children became less and less attractive like to me, well, not attractive. It, it, no, but it did. Like call a spade a spade. It just became less and less attractive. As did marriage. Not because the marriage is anything wrong with the institution of marriage itself, but because of what I was seeing around me. And you know, as you get older, people you become a bit more privy to people's relationships, and people tell you things. And you know, even if it was just a case of like mum and dad just going back and be like, oh, what happened to this couple? And they tell you because you're older. And you're like, oh, like is this what it's about? But <laughs> like. But yeah, so it, those last like probably about two or three years before we got married, it was very much thinking about our future and me constantly telling him the kind of relationship I wanted with him. And like, if we were to have children, this is the kind of father I would want you to be. And this is the only way it can work. And if it's not going to work, then Houston, we've got a problem. So it was a good two, three years of like carving out the kinds of life that we wanted. And for me, it's just stating my case. And that this is what I, this is what I need from you. Yeah. So like, how did you, I suppose, go into the marriage? Obviously not having lived together full time until you were married. How did you go into it almost basically, you know, knowing what you were getting yourself into in terms of the person you're married, considering, you know, bearing in mind that you hadn't lived with each other during any point of a relationship? Yeah. I mean, this, this idea that you have to live with someone to get to know them fully, I don't, I disagree with that because I didn't live with him at all. And I knew exactly what it was like. And we've been together now for over half a decade, uh, married. We've been together for a lot longer than that, but we've been together now. We've been married now for many years and there is nothing new that I've discovered. So I knew exactly the kind of guy that I married. I think it's about doing life together. I think it's about being honest and frank with each other and trusting each other, asking the right questions, getting to a point where, you know, you can ask you know, that relationship that you have with this family member or this relationship, or what were you doing during this period of your life? Tell me more about that. Knowing everything and not just taking it in as what they're telling you, but connecting the dots as to what that means in terms of his personality and his decision-making and his thought processes and how he like manages and keeps and makes and ends relationships. So it's constantly not just taking, he says, as a surface level, but connecting but digging deeper and trying to understand how that relates to his personality and his character in a way that you think might translate for you if you were to marry that person. That's what I did a good few years before. And being married together and suddenly living together, yeah, that was that those first few months, they were intense in that it wasn't the character stuff. It was just the living stuff. Like, you know, he had a thing of, you know, you, you cook in a saucepan or whatever, rather than put it in Tupperware, he'd put it in the fridge, the whole pot in the fridge. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, and he'd be like, I've done this for the past 10 years because he lived on his own for pretty much 10 years by this point. And it's like, no, you can't do that. Like, you know, we do shopping and I open the fridge and it's full of pots. I can't put the shopping in. I'm looking for pots when I'm cooking. Like, I don't think it's very hygienic to do that. You know, that was getting used to each other. That was difficult, but then you just have to be patient with each other. And for the, given the length of time that we've been together and the amount of life that we'd lived together, we'd lived through together. So we'd gone through some lots of difficult, like gone through lots of ups and downs, both personally, you know, individually as a couple, you kind of learn, you learn to be patient with each other. But, you know, certainly the biggest change, I suppose, was, you know, being married. You think it was more about what that meant for me, like 
being married and living with someone kind of for me was like having like a HD like OLED mirror just being put on all my flaws and all the things that I'm not good at and equally all the things I am good at and the things that I am strong in. But that's like a self-development thing that I felt that was the biggest transition was for how it affected me personally. But yeah, I'd felt like I'd done my homework before I got married to him and I wouldn't have got married to him had I not. Yeah, done your due diligence. And so what is, I guess, the marriage landscape, you know, like? Because for many of our listeners, that's something that they would like to aspire to. But then I guess, you know, when you see the state of so many marriages where it's clearly a one-sided affair or where the wife is basically a single parent, it can be difficult to conceptualise what a functioning, healthy marriage actually looks like. So can you give us some insight into that? Like, you know, what's it like basically being you know, not married to a scrope. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's always going to be a work in progress, but you have to be willing to go against the grain that I've been told so many times that questioned about the way we do our relationship, how we practice things. Like one of the first things that I found really irritating when I got married was this expectation that, and it was something that we both didn't want and we're both not like that, is this expectation that we suddenly become conjoined at the hip. So some, I remember a friend invited us out, I think for a games night and I was sick. So I was like, I'm not coming. So I messaged us, I'm not coming. I'm really sorry. And so Stephen went and then Stephen turns up and, you know, my friend's like, and you know, this is a, she's friends with both of us. And he's in fact known her longer than I had. And she's like, I don't think you were coming because Lara was sick. And he was like, why would I not come? Like, we're not conjoined. Like this expectation that we have to do absolutely everything together or that we have to spend every spare moment of our lives together. Like during lockdown, I mean, you know, people were, my friends and people around me were, became, you know, very, I guess, kindly. It's not really the word, but the closest word that I can think of right now. You know, kindly you know, asking, you know, how are things with you guys? Because a lot of people were having arguments because they were in each other's space all the time. You know, just sort of being, is it really tough for you guys? Like, is there anything I can do? I was like, no, because we give each other space. Most of the time we spent in different rooms, like working, because we were both working during that time. And then, you know, we have our own shit going on, basically. And we have our own lives. Yeah. I'm not trying to be up and in his face 24-7 and he's not trying to be up in mine 24-7. That's not how we've ever been. And that's not how I think, you know, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I imagine when you get to like your 70s, 80s, that's, that's all you want for. You want that. But yeah, it's just not how we work. So you have to be willing to go against the grain and decide what you want. And I feel like people just f- take the fun out of marriage and like long-term relationships because they feel like you have to do this. So, you know, you must buy a house together. You must have a minimum of X amount of children. The minute you walk down the aisle, you've got to start planning. And it's like, you don't have to do it that way. Like do what works for you. Like, you know, what is truly important to you? If it's really important for you to travel the world, go and bloody travel. Like, you know, having kids before you're ready is not going to make your life better. Yeah. I remember like your wedding was barely over before like family members were asking when the kid is coming. No, at the wedding, people were saying like, right, so, you know, nine months time, we want to come back and we want to do the christening. And it's like, are you kidding me? And like, you know what? And actually being married, thinking of the wedding, it was like another anecdote that I could. Oh my God, that wedding. <laughs> I, think every, I think everyone was finished, but probably you and Stephen were the most finished after those two. <laughs> yeah, we like, seriously, like, so at the wedding, people would come up to me and be like, make sure you look after him. Make sure you make his meals. Make sure you make a happy home. Make sure. And I was like, yeah, cool. And they were saying it to be nice. And it was quite lighthearted. But at the end of the wedding, a couple of days later, I told Stephen, I was like, did you notice how no one said anything to you? No one said, 
Make sure you look after her. Make sure you pay her bills. <laughs> make sure you pay the bills. Make sure you bring money in. You know, make sure you buy all the food that she's going to cook for you. Like, don't put that on her. Like, you know, nobody said anything to him. And he was just like, yeah, no one did. No one told me to do anything. Everyone came to you. And it's just that. And very, very quickly, I realized that. So when I was talking earlier about marriage benefiting, having lots and lots of benefits for men and not so many for women, like those first few months, that became very apparent because it's like, gosh, like, you know, if we had an argument or a disagreement and, or he was doing something that I didn't like or I was finding difficult and I confided in trusted people, the vast majority of these people, and some of them being married themselves, they just gift wrap different ways of telling me, find a way of coping. You know, just, just, just try harder. Like, you just have to put up with it. And this kind of put up and shut up attitude that is given to women. But if he had an issue with something that I did and someone found out, it was like, Lara, he's your husband. Stop it immediately. Now, no excuse. You need to stop it. And it's like, all right. So I have to suddenly (laughs) snap out of poor behavior, but I have to find a way of coping with it, you know, coping with his. And you have to be aware of that so that you can advocate for yourself. And I always present those. Anytime that comes up, I always tell him, oh, Stephen, look at that. Like, did you notice that? And it helps him remember that actually he has, he has advantages. He has advantages in a marriage relationship that I don't have. And it's literally just because of gender. So for him, it's like, you know, you have these advantages. So it's on you to like, to use them in a way that supports me and supports us and not to use them selfishly for yourself. But also for me personally, is to be aware of those things that he has and make sure that those boundaries. And I think for that reason, I think like women just as a woman, I just don't get to play with my boundaries the way men can. Like, I think that they can push back on their boundaries in, in ways that I don't think I can afford to. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I guess, like, to finish off the episode, you now have a really cute little daughter who makes me laugh. How has that changed the, you know, relationship, you know, dynamic in that way? And obviously, you know, with the existing idea, even within marriages where both people are deemed progressive, you still have the workload, like, falling disproportionately on the women as well. So what was that like, you know, trying to navigate basically being parents in a way that was equitable? Yeah, I guess I'm a few months in. So, you know, in a few months time, things I might feel differently, but my gosh, having children, I've never felt so vulnerable because you can just see no matter how, and you know, I have a husband who is all in, there is nothing that he won't do. He's taken like, I've seen him take the baby, like in meetings, like when he's working, he'll just have the baby. Whoever. And he's never said, no, I can't do that. He's never, ever said that. Or he's never complained about being a father and what that means. Like he's never made a thing out of it. So, and I can depend on him. And that sounds bare minimum, but there's just too many stories and too many relationships where it's like, oh, I'm babysitting tonight. You can't babysit your own child. Like you're looking after your offspring. Yeah. Well, I've got work tomorrow. I need a full (laughs) night's sleep. So I'm going to you know, sleep in the other room or, you know, I'm not going to wake up at night. And it's like, when I'm completely broken, if I'm at that point where I need a full night's sleep and he's got work tomorrow because, you know, I'm on maternity leave at the moment, he's not, he'll do it. That's part of it. Like, if you have a kid, like, you can't expect, yeah, sometimes you're going to have to go to, you know, he's had to go to work 
will start working a bit tired. I mean, he's not doing a job. You know, I mean, I suppose if you're, I don't know, a train driver or something like that, where you, you can't really afford to be tired. <laughs> but that, like, his job is still quite involved, though. You have to be alert. It's still involved. He has to be alert. Like, you know, he deals with, you know, billions of pounds. So it's his attention to detail has to be astute. But ultimately, this is something that we both went in together. And I felt vulnerable at times because I can see, like, it's so easy to be this, to fall into this, like, main caregiver role. Not because you want to, but because people, like, and the things that people say to you sometimes, they either make the assumption that he's useless. They're like, oh, you know, they just don't get it. And it's like, no, what I don't think sometimes he's understood is the pressure and he can't understand it the pressure that is on women and mothers to be this like I call it Mary Poppins mum and I'm never going to be that I knew that I was never going to be a Mary Poppins mum and I'm yeah and I'm not a Mary Poppins mum and I don't care that I'm not because I'm the best mother to my daughter that I can be and all her needs are met and she's just a beautiful growing clever like exciting dynamic girl but there is this pressure to have like you know these insta mums they can all fucking get in the bin like all of them, they're all, they're all lying, every single one of them. But that's what I found hard for him to understand because he's just not a woman. But what I've done where we've had disagreements or where I don't feel he's really understood me or like I'm at my limit and you don't get it. You just don't get it. I've sat there and written something and just read it out to him. And thankfully, like he's always responded. So like, you know, I'm doing this right now and he's now, he's gone out for the whole evening. He's like, oh, so that you can do your thing and so you can have the house to yourself because I, I rarely get the house to myself. And it is those things that I miss. I miss being able to have an hour to myself or watch something or just have the place, you know, especially after pregnancy where like you're so hormonal at one point. I told him yesterday, finally, after like almost a year, but like your senses are all heightened. And one time he was sitting next to me and I was in my second trimester at the time. And he was breathing and it was just winding me up. I'm like, it took every fibre of my being to not turn around to him and say, can you stop fucking breathing? Like, like, <laughs> like, and he's just, his breath was, annoyed. and it's not like he's, he doesn't breathe like Darth Vader. Like, I can just, <laughs> he's, I think it's, he's not like a mouth breather. <laughs> I know, we did a whole episode on mouth breathers. A man can be annoying as fuck in the way that he breathes. Yeah, about creepy men. I cried during that episode with laughter. It was so funny <laughs> and so right. Like, it's just everything, all the creeps that I avoided, it was like you captured all of them. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> and I think I was shopping in the supermarket. So I was just there laughing my head off and people were giving me the craziest looks. Like, but it was just, yeah, it was hilarious. But um, yeah, like he was just watching TV, but I could just hear his breath. And I just didn't like it. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that, that's what pregnancy does. And I think pregnancy, and again, I knew this. I mean, I've got, you know, quite good friends who, you know, who'd gone through it before me. So they were able to like be honest about how it really was. But, you know, I think having a child is the one thing that will make your relationship so much worse. People who think that having children and getting married will make your relationship better. Like, you just don't know. It won't. Or if you're thinking about bringing a child into a relationship that is struggling, it will finish it. You're literally just accelerating the process. And that's not to say my relationship is bad because I can see how strong my relationship has, our relationship has been like throughout all this stuff, but it puts so much pressure and it sucks all the fun. It can really suck all the fun out of it. Like before we were just able to date each other and like go to just do whatever. And it was so much more easier to just. You visited all the restaurants in the UK at some point. (laughs) 
Yeah, literally become restaurant connoisseur. Like we travel twice a year. And now it's like the thought of going to a restaurant. I was like, oh, I've got to like get my daughter ready. And like, she's going to do like, you know, it just becomes not, you really have to so much harder to just, you know, to do the whole romance thing and to have fun. It's harder to have fun. So if you're thinking that a baby is going to come in and make it better, it won't. I mean, a small part, not the biggest part, but it was a small part of the reason why I wasn't sure if I wanted to. I wanted to have kids because, you know, we're in a good place. But, you know, it's also been so rewarding to just see him become a dad and see the bond that they have together and just to be a family and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I can't imagine doing this with someone who just wasn't what I needed. I just couldn't. And hopefully as well, I think this was something that mum and dad really got, you know, right us in terms of us growing up was they were very open and frank about their marriage and the struggles and you know what they would have wanted to do together <laughs> of us and both if like knowing what you know now would you get married and they both said no but it's like <laughs> i love because the thing is though like they say no but they're also like each other's best friend as well and it's really you know, the idea that you don't always have to be up in your partner's face all the time. Like, you can do your own thing. Like, dad watches, you know, politics and mom says the TV's his office. <laughs> mom stays in the room, you know, reading Daily Mail, reading articles about Meghan Markle. <laughs> yeah, reading articles about Meghan Markle saying how she's terrible for how she treated her dad or whatever. And like, on Facebook, like, all the time. And they're quite, on paper, they're quite different people, but together they just you know have such and I think that is you know similar to what you and Stephen have been through but the ups and downs there's still just that enduring friendship at the basis of it as well and I think the value system what are your values like yeah they align I think they they just have to align Mm -hmm. and even like they would say the same thing they've been you know married almost 40 years and you know know, mum and dad will both say there's absolutely nothing about the other that I'm surprised about And this is one thing that we get a lot of the time as well, is that this idea that this high value man can just mutate and become like Lucifer overnight. I don't think it's a thing. If you do your due diligence, I just don't think it's a thing. Like, you know, mom always said that character is like a smoke. You can only contain it for so long before it will come out. And I think that puts women, it almost makes them unnecessarily afraid that the man that they're seeing is just going to become this demon overnight. And it's like, if you trust in your standards and boundaries, if you trust your instincts, it's unlike, it's really unlikely that will happen, if not impossible, because you'll get a sense of who they are, especially if you're observing them and betting them consistently over a long period of time. Well, yeah. And also like, you know, not taking what they say at surface level. Like, so if they tell you something about themselves, okay, what does that tell you about their thought process, their decision-making, their character, their morals? Like, you have to go down to the granular sometimes. And even if you feel like you're doing it to like, and, and how does that play out for me? Like, what do I get out of this? And a lot of the time I left when I was dating and I left relationships, it was because I just wasn't getting anything out. Like I just, what I was getting out of it was just wasn't worth what I had to go through to get it, you know? So to finish off the episode then, what would you say your top three pieces of advice to women dating would be right now? Without sounding like an Instagram motto, get to know yourself. Like It's really important to get to know yourself and purely so that you know where your, like your strengths, what your strengths and weaknesses are and your vulnerabilities. So for example, for me, I'm very open book. So if I meet a guy for the first time and I like him, it's very obvious that I like him. I will be intentional. I will commit 
to things. I don't do all the whole like I'm not going. I'm going to ignore your phone call until later. Like I, I don't do any. I ain't playing games as Jabba calls yeah, yeah. like, I ain't playing games. <laughs> I don't do it. I can't do it. Um. So it does mean that like that makes me vulnerable to being played. And I learned that dating. And I always say though, like as a woman, if you feel like you have to start playing games in a relationship, you've already lost. Game over. It's game over. Like bail. And if someone started playing, like no matter how good a player you are, the person who started has got the advantage. You know, it's like, so just a bought mission. So for me, I snuff it out. So when I was, if I'm seeing someone or when I was dating people, including my now husband, I look for gameplay. And if I get wind of it, depending on how much I like the guy, I might tell him, look, I'm suspecting that you're playing games because of X, Y, Z, right? Now, I'm not going to ask you to account for it. I just want you to stop. Because if it doesn't stop, then that's it. Like, and that's that. And I walk away. I just warn you. I might warn you once and then I'll just block. Like, and it's okay to have weak spots, but you need to know them because that's what can be used against you. And that way you don't have to change who you are because I'm always going to be open book. If I like someone, I'm going to make it clear that I like them, you know? And that's just on one thing. Second, you just need to get more ruthless. You need to be more selective. Like you need to have your, what's your firing criteria? And for me, like at one point it was like, if you said we're going to meet up at eight o'clock and you came to me with a cock and ball story, quarter to nine, at quarter to nine, like, bye. Like, that was it. His dad would say summary dismissal. That's it. Like, I wasn't interested in your excuses. Like, I just wasn't, you know, if you turned up one day, I went on, I think we went to somewhere like, it's not, not quite, it's not as probably as tacky as KFC, but I shouldn't, oh my gosh, I shouldn't say KFC is tacky, but do you know what I mean? It wasn't like a KFC, <laughs> but it was like a step up, but not quite a restaurant. You know, there's like basically a fast food place. And we didn't spend too much. It was probably, I don't know. Like worked out to be like 17 quid each. And the guy, when the bill came, he brought out his money and he brought out like, you know, the notes, then the pound coins, and then the 50 P's, and then the one P, like to the penny. And he did it really aggressively, like almost <laughs> as, as if to say, I'm not, I'm paying half. And he kind of expected me, I guess, not to have the money. Clearly he'd been burnt. I don't know what he went on in the past, what went on in the past, but he was trying to make a statement. And so I remember just putting a £20 note down for my half. And he just looked a bit stunned. I didn't even question it. But I just in my mind, I'm thinking, with the, that kind of attitude, never again. I'm not seeing you again. But anyway, then the waiter comes and collects it and leaves the change. And he's like, you left your money there. Like, there's some change there. And I was like, the tip? And he looked like such a clown. Like, he was so busy trying to, like, do the half, like, that he forgot to leave a tip. And the fact that I didn't make a fuss about paying half, and I left, it was just so dumb, but I never saw him again. And he tried and tried, like, and eventually after like nagging me on MSN, he was like, look, I'm really sorry about what happened. I was like, I don't, oh, yeah, that's really nice that you've apologized, but I just don't care now, like, bye. Like, I'm not gonna, if you can't communicate how you, what you want, you can't communicate effectively and you're going to be aggressive like that. No, thanks. You know? So long story short, just be more selective, be more ruthless. Like, and sometimes, you know, be the one that, the one that got away. Like, I feel sometimes that women just like, like this whole ride or die thing where you just ride till the wheels fall off. And it's like, no, you can just leave and leave him wondering, you know, there have been guys I look back and I think, yeah, we could have worked, but that thing, he, I don't want to do with that. Or he could have changed and, he, and I hope that he has, but I'm not, that's, I'm going to be a lesson to him. I'm not going to ride till the wheels fall off. No. Um, so that's like my second bit of advice. And then my, probably finally, like 
I guess it's like two things, a mixture of just have fun with it. Like have fun with like dating and like have fun with like firing dudes, like be okay with that. But yeah, probably, I mean, maybe that's a side note, but for me definitely is like boundaries. Like boundaries are so, so important, especially as a woman, especially if you're dating. Like I feel like men will respect you more if you have boundaries, even if that means that they decide not to date you. Because sometimes, in, you know, initially when I started to get stronger and stronger with my boundaries, it meant that some guys just didn't date me or just wouldn't take, take it further. And I used to take that quite personally at the beginning. But now I know that actually they're respecting the fact that they can't give me what I want. So they've said, look, I don't, we can't do this and that's okay. But it does mean when a guy does sign up to being with me, I can feel secure in that. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not forever wondering because I'm not ch- having to reinvent myself to be with him. Yeah. And you're not selling yourself short as well. Like you can fully participate in the relationship knowing that you've made it clear what you will and won't tolerate. And it's up to the guy if he's going to meet that or not. And if he doesn't, it's cool. If he does, great. You'll have a good time. So yeah. Thank you so much for that insight. I hope that's been useful to our listeners. Thank you. Yeah. I hope that's been like can help someone or do something for someone or at least be entertaining. <laughs> Actually, no, no, to cap off because we, I think we should do like a mini roaster scrape, Ray. What do you think? So who was the biggest waste man you dated? Describe the date and we'll roast him. Oh gosh, that's interesting. Oh, it had to be. Oh gosh, I feel really bad. I'm like, what if you. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, can I listen to this? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like the worst guy, it was a disaster of a date. So um, we agreed to go somewhere in central London. And I had been in London in the morning. So I was already in London. I didn't, and at this time I didn't live in London. Actually, that's completely relevant. But he lived in London and he was making his way. And, and I noticed it was a bit odd that he was talking to me, like pretty much for the entire journey. Like his traveling journey was about an hour and a half. And he only didn't talk to me for maybe like a, I don't know, maybe about 15 minutes of that. But I didn't think anything of it. We were only, we were going to some IMAX cinema. And we got there and this guy starts ordering up the cinema, La Bar, like he's Diddy. <laughs> cinema food is so expensive in the uk so expensive so expensive like <laughs> and i'm like oh gosh and so then i just think wow like it's a bit you know a bit much but then it's time to pay and he steps back <laughs> What's going on? And, I'm like, and like we're about to go in like they've brought all like the popcorn the hot dogs the drink so i just and there's like a long queue behind me like and so I'm like are you being serious I take one look at him and he's there looking almost like for a split second I thought he was gonna cry (laughs) (laughs) but then okay so I pay for this um so I paid for it oh my gosh watch the film like you know and every time he took a crunch or a bite like I just heard pound coins (laughs) like like just hitting the floor (laughs) like I just was like okay and then we sort of walked around after the film for a while and it actually he kind of got me a bit you know I kind of charmed me a bit so I was like okay I'm sort of I haven't quite forgotten but I'm like okay maybe I won't just cut you off I'll just tell you that what you did wasn't cool you know when you get in later and so we walked towards the train station because we're now going and I'm not sure how familiar you are with these road but they were called oyster cards oh oh my god this is (laughs) it's like the metro but like it's like a tap thing to top it up you tap it on this machine. So I'm there topping up mine. And then he's like hanging around, giving me this same kind of like sheepish boy look. 
Bearing in mind, I'm going outside London. So whatever his journey is going to cost, at the time, the journey was probably about a pound 30. Like, it wasn't a lot compared to my, like, 11, 12 pounds because I, I lived out, out of London. And so he then puts his, taps his oyster and said, could you mind putting, do you mind putting some money on there? What? He wants you to pay for his transport home? Yeah. And I'm like, excuse me. And he was like, yeah, I don't have any money. And I was like, what? Well, I kind of figured that, given that <laughs> you ordered up the whole bar and then stepped back. But like, so he's like, but how did you get here if you've got no money? And then it, I clocked, he walked. He walked all the way from like, he must have walked about three and a half miles. Wow. Like, <laughs> to this day, because that was why he could speak to me on the phone. Because if, if he was traveling... <laughs> public transport he wouldn't have had any signal it was all and it all made sense because the cinema tickets he had a a, like a coupon a voucher so they were free oh my god (laughs) so it's just like so you walked here and he was like yeah and I was like we're gonna have to walk back (laughs) (laughs) because you ate all your transport money (laughs) even mine midnight and you know London isn't the safest of places and blah 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 and so he then he just sort of you know gets a bit annoyed and just walks and walks off I get home and then I, I didn't even call him like when he I just woke up the next day about probably in the evening he calls me and he's like you didn't even check up on me like to see if I was still alive and I was like bro like at what point did I become responsible for your welfare I'm sorry. Like, oh my god! For your well-being, and it was just, and and he was just like, I can't believe you made a big deal out of one pound twenty. I was like, I made a big deal out of one pound twenty. Me, like according to my bank records, you owe me about thirty-five quid. <laughs> Honestly, so yeah, that was like that was the most disastrous day. Like the guy, he was an, he was. Apart from that, all that, he was a really nice, like, really clever, really talented, like, you know, really, really interesting guy. But, yeah, that was, yeah, and it was like, no. Oh, but, oh, my gosh, like, you don't, if you have no money, that's fine. But you then don't go and order, like, 35 quid worth of cinema food and just step back, like, oh, my God. And then expect me to pay for your travel home and then hold me, like, responsible for, like, the fact that you're walking home in anxiety. It's not like he asked me how my journey was. And you had further to go as well. Yeah, I had further to go. So, yeah, that was a disaster of a day. And, yeah, and every so often I hear, like, you know, whether it's on Reddit or whether it's a friend that goes on a date, I just hear variations of that story. But just, like, this whole... I'm just like, I, don't, I can't believe this still goes on. It's almost like they read from the same, like, low-value scrote handbook when the minute they turn, like, 15. Do you know what I mean? Like, so yeah, that was, yeah, that was my most disastrous date. Well, hopefully he wouldn't try that again if he had to walk back three miles in central, dodgy central, like, <laughs> like, like, like at midnight. <laughs> midnight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that oh, was funny. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Okay. <laughs> so thank you for coming on our podcast because that was very helpful. And I'm, my sides are hurting from laughing so hard. So... <laughs> Thank 
you so much. Yes, of course. Uh, that's our show. Please check us out on Patreon for our weekly bonus content, patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. And you can also uh, discuss this episode on our website, thefemaledatingstrategy.com. Also check us out on Twitter at femdatstrat and Instagram at underscore the female dating strategy. Thanks for listening, queens, and for all you scrotes out there. Uh, we hope you walk home alone in the cold at midnight with no money. Die mad. And die mad. <laughs> <laughs> See y'all next week. Bye.